Well, good morning. I would invite you, if you have them this morning, to take your Bibles, and uh, we're going to actually look at two passages. So I'm going to read just a brief section from Luke chapter 1, and then we're going to flip over to volume 2 of Luke's volume, two-volume set, and I'm going to read a brief passage from Acts chapter 1. So let's begin. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now over to the book of Acts. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Someone uh, said this uh, years ago, never look back unless you're planning to go that way. Now, that particular quote is often misattributed to Henry David Thoreau. Uh, There are those who live by that kind of a philosophy, that philosophy that says never look back, always keep moving forward. But this morning, we're in a transition time. We're in a transition in a sermon series, and I actually think it's good at times to look back. In fact, I believe a backward look can be healthy. I don't know where it was, but some time ago, I ran across a phrase that really made a lot of sense to me. And it was this phrase, faith is best seen in reverse. The point of that particular phrase is that sometimes when we are in the middle of a time in which our faith is being stretched and tested, when we are in the middle of a faith step, we we don't always have the, the confidence that we should. But when we take a glance back, we can see how God was at work. We can see the hand of God when we were at our lowest, how God was carrying us through. We can see that God was there all the time, and that can give us confidence. The purpose, I believe, of sometimes taking a backward glance and looking at where we've come from is it gives us the courage to move forward and to step into those stretching times with great confidence. Now, today's an interesting day at Pleasant Hill Community Church. Long before I knew that this would be a day that uh, different people would uh, connive together to uh, celebrate and reflect on our 25 years of ministry here and service, I had already begun to think about this being a transitional sermon. 
You see, the day I start a new sermon series, I literally begin praying for the next one. Where are we headed? And so as I was praying through the Luke series and as we were progressing through the Gospel of Luke, I was saying, Lord, what do you want next? And uh, the, the Holy Spirit would say to me, why don't you go into volume two? Oh, okay, that's a good idea. Lord, but where do you want me to go? Why don't you go to volume two? Yeah, I know Acts was volume two, but where do you want me to go? It took me a while to kind of get it. But finally I did, and I realized, oh, maybe God wants us to spend time in the book of Acts to see the follow-up to the book of Luke. I get it now. And then, long before I knew what this day was to be about, I entitled this sermon, Looking Back, Looking Forward. Well, I had gone through all of that, and Bill comes and sits down with me and tells me that you're going to do this anniversary thing and this celebration, and I kind of laughed at the humor of God. For today is a day in which we look back and see what God has done and the journey he's taken so many of us on and look forward and say, okay, God, we're ready to move into what you have next. Over the last eight months when we've been in the Gospel of Luke, we have covered a lot of ground. We have journeyed through Luke, and, and I hope you have learned some things. I have learned a lot. And like any sermon series I've ever preached in the 25 years that I've been here, I always complete one realizing, wow, there was so much more we could have gone through. But this morning, I don't want to review every sermon that we've gone through. Uh, I want to look at Luke's purpose statement that I've just read for you. And then I want to look over at his purpose statement in Acts. And I want to use Luke's purpose statement as a foundation for us moving forward. And I'm going to draw some observations from Luke and a couple from Acts to show you kind of where we've been and where we're going. Luke's audience is essentially one person. His name is Theophilus. He's a person apparently of great importance because he's addressed as most excellent Theophilus there in Luke 1. Luke uh, is, is holding this person in high regard. Luke also gives this person his clear purpose and methodology. And, and so Luke states that he's been aware of many accounts that have already been drawn up. And, and Luke says that he decided to start his own investigation. In fact, the words that he uses is uh, the words he use here uses here are since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Luke says I have carefully I've studied this. Charlene and I like mystery shows. We well, we love mystery shows. We enjoy watching them. And one of our, I guess you could say, hobbies is, is to try to figure out from the clues that we're given in the show, even looking at the visual clues, the, the little things that the camera might focus on at a certain point or time, looking at a statement of foreshadowing, all of that. And we try to figure out who done it before we're told? There is a sense, as I looked at these words, I thought, Luke, 
is kind of describing himself as a spiritual detective. That word carefully, Luke says, I carefully investigated. That word carefully is a word that means to be precise, to be accurate, to be methodical. Luke brought that kind of research into the system that he was dealing with. He was methodical. He investigated this. That's a term that means to pay careful attention to, to follow closely. In fact, it reflects a phrase that we often hear in our detective shows that we watch, in our mystery shows. Someone says, we're going to follow the evidence and see where it leads. And Luke is telling Theophilus, I methodically followed the evidence about the life of Jesus to see where it led because I have a specific purpose. And the purpose is this. Theophilus, my friend, I want you to be certain of the things that you've been taught. To be certain means to be firm, to be secure, to be unshaken. He wanted Theophilus to have a complete, unshakable confidence in the things that he had been taught. One of the things that stood out for me in this study of Luke is a very simple observation and principle. And it's simply this. Those who live in obedience to God tend to live in certainty. Now, not everybody in Luke was living in disobedience to God. Even those who had doubts weren't mainly living in disobedience, but, the, but the, the principle seems that when you live in obedience to God, there's this certainty that, that God is there that he's going to show up. For me, the contrast was really clear in the very first chapter. In the very first chapter, we meet Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest. He serves at the temple. There were many priests in that day. And it was a chance of a lifetime if you got to actually go into the holy place and present the blood and over the mercy seat. And, and by chance, actually by the fact that God had arranged all this, Zechariah gets to go in. What we learn about Zechariah is he's a good and godly man. He's married to a woman named Elizabeth. And the tragedy of their life is that they had no children. And that in the first century was a tragedy. He had no son. There was no heir to go after him. There would be no one, whenever Zechariah died, there would be no one to step in and to take care of Elizabeth. And, and, and so that was a tragedy. People in that day believed that if you did not have children, somehow God had not blessed you. Uh, Zechariah goes into the temple goes in that day to go in and to present the offering to God, that special moment. And as he goes in to present the offering to God, he sees the angel Gabriel. He is shocked. 
And Gabriel tells him not to be afraid. And he tells him that he's going to have a son. And Zechariah doubts him and questions him. And Gabriel says, because you doubt me and question me when I am Gabriel, who I see the face of God, I stand in the very presence of God, then you're not going to be able to hear or speak until this prophecy is fulfilled. Quite a difference in Elizabeth. Near uh, here in chapter 1, verse 24, 3 through 5, we find that Zechariah goes home, Elizabeth becomes pregnant, and in verse 25 she says, The Lord has done this for me. In these days he has shown me his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Elizabeth is certain that this is God's work, and that certainty enables her to be an encourager to another individual who had to step out in faith. We were introduced to her in the very next section. It's Mary, this 13 to 15-year-old girl who is visited also by the angel Gabriel and is told that she's going to bear a child. And her concern, her concern is different. She says, I know how babies are made and I'm a virgin. How's this going to happen? And she's told that this is going to be a work of God through the Holy Spirit. And her response is, in verse 38, I am the Lord's servant. I am certain this is from God. I am going to live in obedience to God because those who live in obedience to God tend to live with certainty. A second thing that stood out for me as we walked our way through the Gospel of Luke was that which really caused me to give the title to the whole series. And the title to this series was Good News for Everyone. You see, in Luke's gospel, we find Jesus making it a point to hang out in the margins of society. The people who are the main characters in the gospel of Luke are not what you would call the hip and the cool kids. They're the people who are often overlooked. Let me begin where we just began and start at the chapter 1 and just give you some descriptors here. We have an old man and his wife who are childless. They kind of get forgotten in life. We have a 14-year-old girl who becomes the subject of scandal in her village because she's pregnant before her wedding. We have an old man in chapter 2. His name is Simeon. He hangs out in the temple. What's he do? He hangs out looking for babies. What? Well, because he was certain, because God had told him, you're not going to die until you see the Messiah. He lived in obedience and certainty, and he waited. But he was kind of on the margins. There was a, an older woman named Anna, certain that God was going to do a work, waiting in dependency upon him for everything as she lived in the temple complex as a widow, had been widowed early on and just lived in that relationship with God. We, we have people that were crippled, a man with a shriveled hand. We had the, the, the man that was paralyzed and he's dropped through the, 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 the roof. Nobody really cares about him. We have his friends that say that the Bible says Jesus saw their faith. We have these people. We have a woman who's been shunned by her 
village as a woman of a bad reputation and yet she comes to Jesus at a dinner and she comes to his feet and she weeps over his feet and she wipes his feet with her hair and, and, and just is humbled by him and, and in his presence. And he receives her and he uses her as an example of one who's been forgiven much. We have another woman who had a, a, a serious issue of a, of a bleeding, of a hemorrhaging, and for 12 years she's poked and prodded and experimented on by doctors and no one pays attention to her and she reaches out maybe crawling through the feet of the crowd to touch the hem of Jesus' garment and she's healed and he turns to her and he sees her and he calls her daughter and he raises her up. We have Jesus being a safe person. Jesus uses as an illustration a hated Samaritan as the one who actually lived out and gave the example of one who truly lives out loving your neighbor as yourself. And I could go on and on. There was Zacchaeus, a wee little man who climbed up a tree because the Lord, he wanted to see Zacchaeus, a hated tax collector. And Jesus stops. He sees him and says, come on, I'm going to your house. And, and his life is changed. And we have all of these people kind of put together in this catchphrase that we find in Luke, tax collectors and sinners. The religious elite, the high society, the nobility, weren't necessarily shunned by Jesus as we went through the book of Luke. It's just the fact that they didn't seem to need or want him. So Jesus focused on those who by their circumstances were looking for answers. The fact of the matter is, as Luke, a trained physician that we learn in Colossians 4.14, trained to look for details as he did that, he discovered that Jesus hung out in the margins. He spent time with the people that we would call the marginalized, out on the edges of society. And what I learned is simply this, that good news, God's good news is for all. Let me put it another way. No one is invisible to God. I take great comfort as I, read this, as I discover that in the book of Luke. I hope you do too. No one is invisible to God. That theme carries all the way through the book of Acts. I believe that's a theme that we need to kind of investigate ourselves in the Bible. No one is invisible to God. In fact, we're going to see something in the book of Acts, one of, our, one of the glimpses forward, and it's this. In the early part of Acts, as the, 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 the thing that we call the church is exploding onto the scene, in Acts chapter 1 through 9, it appears to be largely a Jewish movement. It appears to be largely a movement among the Jewish people. Uh, whether they are Jews by birth or proselytes, those who came into the Jewish faith, it's moving among them. But something happens in Acts chapter 10 that's completely different. 
In Acts chapter 10, after a vision, and all Peter is convinced to go to the house of a man by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius is a Roman official. For Peter, a Jew, to cross the threshold of a Roman official's house was anathema. It was not done. It was cursed. You shouldn't do it. You don't go into the house of a Gentile. But Peter goes there because he was led by the Holy Spirit because Cornelius had been praying and Peter shares the gospel with Cornelius and his household and the Holy Spirit comes on them and they're all, they all come to faith. And after that event, Peter says this in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35. I now realize that God shows no favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. No one is invisible to God. God's good news is for everyone. If you'll recall, those of you who were with us last week, we looked at the, the sermon that Jesus gave at the end of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 24. You remember the story, two guys from Emmaus walking down the road, a stranger comes up, begins to talk to them, they're just, you know, totally blown away that he doesn't know what's been going on in Jerusalem, and then it says he opened the scriptures and showed them from Moses and the prophets how everything pointed to him. And then later on in the upper room, he opened the scriptures and looked at Moses and the prophets and the Psalms and showed them how it all related to him. What we concluded last week was that when we look at the scriptures, we can understand that we serve a God who carries out all his promises. We can be certain that God will carry out all his promises. You see, you and I can make promises. I promise I'll be there at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. But then something happens. We get sick, or a friend gets, or a family member gets sick. Something happens. Oh, I got to cancel that appointment. Can we reschedule? I can't keep all my promises. I should try. But I can't control the circumstances. But I serve a God, you serve a God, who is sovereign over the circumstances, and he carries out all his promises. Well, that causes us to move now to shift to the book of Acts. The idea of looking forward this morning is as we shift our attention to the book of Acts. And I'm just going to spend a little bit of time here in, in chapter 1 and what we read. Luke reminds his friend Theophilus that the first book was to explain all that Jesus did and taught until he ascended into heaven. Luke tells us that he was with them for 40 days, basically a month and a half. Imagine, imagine that month and a half for the followers of Jesus. They were given so many convincing proofs that he was alive. He spoke often about the kingdom of God to the point where they thought maybe it was going to happen right now. We'll see that as we get into it a little bit next week. But, but he, he spoke about the kingdom of God. And, and yet, the first quote that Luke has 
in the, God, in the book of Acts, the first quote is a command. And it is a command that kind of carries with it that unique and subtle reminder that we live best when we live in obedience. We read that in verse uh, 4. On one occasion when he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The first command that Jesus gave them is the command that is the hardest for you and me to ever really carry out. Wait. None of us like to wait. Waiting is hard. Waiting is a struggle. And yet, God, through Jesus, gave the first command to his disciples, wait. And as we look into the book of Acts, one thing is going to become very, very clear. And it's simply this. We must learn to daily not run ahead of God. We must learn to daily not run ahead of God. The, 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 the point I want you to remember is simply this. Wait on and lean into the power of the Holy Spirit. Waiting on the Lord doesn't mean just to be still. Waiting on the Lord doesn't mean to do nothing. Waiting on the Lord means, let me borrow from Henry Blackaby here from his Experiencing God curriculum from quite a few years ago. It means keep doing the last thing that you believe God told you to do until he points you in a new direction. Waiting on the Lord is not something just for pastors and missionaries and professional Christian workers. It's for all of us. And it requires that we be in constant relationship with the Holy Spirit. It was a beautiful sunny morning several years ago. I think that I was about, uh, it was about our 19th or 20th year here at Pleasant Hill Community Church. I was with a friend, a good friend, a colleague in ministry. We were on the 10th hole of one of the courses at St. Andrew's Golf Course. It's a par five. We had just teed off, and in one of those rare moments of golfing with us amateurs, both of us hit very good tee shots down the middle of the fairway, very close to each other. So as we were walking along, we could actually walk together, and we were talking. And my friend asked me, how long have you been at Pleasant Hill? And I said, oh, I think this next year will be 20 years. Wow, that's incredible. Is it possible you've been there too long? I hadn't had anybody ask me that question before. It kind of took me back a second. Is it possible I've been here too long? Hmm. I thought for a minute and I said this, I said, you know, my wife and I clearly, clearly know what it was like to be called here. 
we were very comfortable where we were. All of our children had born, been born in our town in Indiana. We had a little house that we owned. We, we, you know, we were in a, a church that, well, it was a large enough church that we knew people in town. We were very comfortable in so many ways. And we know vividly what it was like to be called. And God hasn't done that yet. So we believe it's obedience to continue to be right here. We must learn daily to not run ahead of God, but to wait on and lean into the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus told him on that night he was crucified. He told them a lot about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit would come and indwell them and be their comforter and their guide and their teacher. But they had to wait on God's timing. A time would come, Jesus said, you're going to be immersed in the Holy Spirit and he's going to be in you and, and we're going to know, you're going to know that, you're going to see it and you need to wait on and lean into the power of the Holy Spirit. And what that means for all of us is we don't have to go it alone. We don't have to figure out things alone. We don't have to make things work. We trust God. We have to learn to be patient and to wait. We have to learn to not run ahead of God. We have to learn what it means to listen and hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. We need to learn to discern His voice from our own emotions. It requires relationships, and it happens best in community. As we look ahead to the book of Acts, I am convinced that we're going to discover principles that are not bound by time, that are not limited by culture. You see, I'm convinced of that because of something that happened to me 25 years ago. 25 years ago, Monday morning, August 5th, I had just preached my first sermon in residence. Now, why the reason I say that is, in July of 1996, Charlene and I and the kids came up here every week, every weekend. We stayed with several families in the church, and we would preach on, I would preach on Sunday morning, preach on Sunday night, and then we would go back to Indiana where we would begin, be in that process of closing up things there, starting to pack boxes and everything to make the move here. So that we, we moved up here on August 1st, we started unpacking, I got my office unpacked, I got everything set up, I preached on Sunday morning, I come over to the office on, sun, on Monday morning, I sit at my great big metal desk that was there, I found out that it was donated from a family in the church years ago, and it came from the old Kerr-McGee plant, and you have to have some history here to know why when I thanked the person for that donation one day when we went to visit her she was shocked that we still had it and wondered if it glowed in the dark because of some issues with that particular time but anyway uh, I sat there at that big old desk and I think I had a similar experience as the disciples when they saw Jesus disappear in the cl clouds here in Acts 1 I looked around looked at my office and I said to myself, now what? What do I do now? And somewhere in that quietness of that moment, I was prompted to start reading the book of Acts. 
to start reading the book of Acts and to start asking God, show me your principles that are timeless. Show me your principles that are cultureless that I can live out as a pastor. And over the next few weeks, I hope to share some of those with you. Uh, because here's a final observation. An observation that I've made not just in Luke, but in a career of studying God's Word, including 25 years here. It's very simple, and it's this. God's Word is dynamic and therefore always relevant. When I say God's Word is dynamic, I mean what the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.12. God's Word is living and active, the writer says. That means it's, it's alive, he says. It's, it's living, it's active. It pierces into the very core of our being. In other words, it's dynamic. We, we're dynamic. We're living, active beings. We bring our experiences, we bring our emotions, we bring our culture to the Word of God, and the Word of God speaks into our heart. We see things we'd not seen before, not because they weren't there, but because we are looking at them differently. And that's the reality that brings me back to the well of the Word of God day in, day out, year in, year out. This Word is dynamic. It's alive. It speaks to the core of who I am. It speaks to the core of who you are. My encouragement to each one of you over this, as we move forward, is to do two things. One, if you took notes over the Gospel of Luke, Go back and review them. What did God teach you? But secondly, every now and then, take a little bit of time to turn and to look back. To look back over the course of your life. Not to pine for the past and the good old days. To look back and reflect. Look at the Word of God and the work of God in your life. Look back and look at those moments where you said, yes, I was walking by faith in that moment. In the olden days, when we came to times like this, we used to pull out the photo albums. Remember those? Or the yearbooks. And we would thumb through them and, and look at them. We would laugh at how funny we looked. I mean, people have talked about my mustache that I had up until about 2001 and, you know, that, that 70s, that actually 80s and 90s stash that uh, no longer exists. We, we'll laugh at those things. We laugh at how big our glasses were sometimes and, and the outfits we were, wore. I mean, one time my kids looked at a high school yearbook and said, Dad, did you have any friends? It was like, a, what an encouraging moment. But we do that. But sometimes we'll look at a picture and we'll remember an event that is captured in that picture. And, and we'll talk about that event and, and we'll talk about the story that, that kind of is summarized by that picture and, and we'll enjoy the memory. 
I think we need that in our spiritual life. I think we need to take those glances back and we need to reflect on what God has done. We need to see what God has done so that we can be encouraged to once again turn our gaze forward and with renewed energy lean into what he has for us next. Look back so you can confidently move forward. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these reminders. Thank you for the dynamic nature of your word that speaks to our lives, that speaks to our hearts, that speaks to the core of who we are. Thank you for walking beside us. Thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit. May today be a day in which we reflect on what you've done and with renewed confidence move into what you have. And may we give you the glory and the honor and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.